Whenever you're ready. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining me for another episode of the Typical Skeptic Podcast. I have an amazing guest with me tonight. We're going to be talking about occult symbolism and cinema. And I have with me Robert W. Sullivan IV. He's a philosopher, historian, antiquarian, jurist, theologian, theologian, writer, and lawyer. He attended Gettysburg College in Pennsylvania. And then he attended Oxford University, St. Catherine College, which was Oxford University, which he explained to me. Um, he's a Freemason. He's actually, which is so interesting, he's a 32nd degree Scottish Rite Freemason. And he achieved that in uh, Baltimore, Maryland in 97. He became a 32 degree Mason in the Valley of Baltimore, Orion in, in uh, 1999. And that's amazing in itself. And his books are Cinema Symbolism 123. The Royal Ark of Enoch and a Pact with the Devil. And I want to give him a big warm welcome to the show. Robert, thank you for joining me. How are you? I'm very well, Robert. Thank you for having me on uh, the Typical Skeptic Podcast. It's my pleasure to be here this evening. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to have you on. Now, I did a little bit of studying for this podcast, and it was, a, it was really interesting to get into this. I found out that there's three different types of symbolism that can go into uh, this, this filmmaking or, or even when we look at literature or filmmaking, and that's Masonic, Gnostic, and alchemical. Can you break down the, these different types of symbolism and how they're, they're in some movies and stuff like that? Sure. I mean, there's a lot more examples than those three, but sure, with, with those three, um, usually a, a Gnostic movie is, is a movie that involves um, many different things. The most popular thread of, of the Gnostic film is the Valentinian thread, and this is always what's you know, usually talked about as being like an Illuminati movie. This is where there's some sort of hidden puppet master sort of controlling the strings of humankind behind um, the curtain. And, uh, you know, I guess if you really want to see like what a Gnostic movie looks like, or, or like, you know, especially this is, I'm thinking like the Valentinian thread, because he's the most popular. Um, you know, take a look at the, the first Matrix movie, Dark City. Um, you know, those are probably two of the godfather, you know, or two of the granddaddies. Of, of the Valentinian Gnostic movie. When you get into like Basilides, who's another Gnostic philosopher, um, I would go with Existence by David Cronin on that one. And then you have Manny. He's kind of light versus dark, good versus evil. The, the Manichaean thread in, in film is the least interesting because it's the easiest to spot. This is essentially good versus evil, light versus darkness. So take your pick, Jedi versus Sith, Harry Potter versus the Death Eaters, Frodo Baggins versus Sauron, um, you know, you get it. Um, Masonic, um, you know, this is another one, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of movies out there that um, include Masonic, you know, symbols. I, I'm always asked about, like, you know, oh, did you see this movie with the ring in it? Or, you know, the guy was wearing the ring. That doesn't interest me as much as sort of, um, you know, when, when, the, when, when the Masonic symbolism is, is really well hidden. And, and one of the best examples that I can give you for that is uh, the National Treasure movie, the first, very first one. I love that or, movie. Yeah, well, on its surface, it has, I'm a fan of it also, um, on its surface, it has Freemasonry in it, but what a lot of people are not aware of, um, and this was a movie I actually analyzed in my very first book, was the movie is actually a Masonic ritual. Um, it's actually a retelling of the 13th degree in the Scottish Rite, the 7th degree in the York Rite, which is appropriate title of the, the Royal Arch of Enoch. It's what I wrote my first book about. Um, the, the ritual involves the uh, discovery of uh, Masonic Knights Templar treasure in a subterranean vault beneath the holy ground in Jerusalem. And of course, this is what the movie's about. Um, but they, know, find about it, they find it in a city, right? I can't remember where Nicolas Cage goes. Like, 
I know he goes on a treasure quest, but like, don't they find it in like, New York or something? Or right in the movie, they switch the holy ground to New York City, which is a reference to a royal archmason named Dewitt Clinton, who was yeah. a very prominent royal archmason and uh, former mayor of New York and former governor of New York State. So when you're watching National Treasure, um, by all means, you are actually watching a Masonic ritual. And of course, alchemical movies, these are probably some of my favorite of all. Um, these involve, well, there's actual literal alchem alchemical movies, which involves the transmutation of base metal to gold. Um, I guess probably one of the best examples of that would be the Ian Fleming James Bond story, Goldfinger, where in that movie, he's trying to actually take the gold and alchemically change it by making it radioactive to make it worthless. So in that aspect, it's an alchemical film. He's actually changing uh, the gold. He's he's uh, changing on a on an atomic molecular level to make it valueless. Um, but really, the alchemical movies I kind of really delve into probably more than that um, are movies that are what I would describe as like psychological alchemy. Um, these are you know what what is discussed by like people like Carl Jung. And um, this is where it's it's a person, the protagonist usually, uh, going through some sort of transition or change. And I'm not just talking about you know moving from one city to another. I'm talking about where the character starts as one thing at the very beginning of the movie, and then through some occult alchemical process, um, which is played out during the rest of the movie. By the end of it, there's something entirely completely different. So um, those are also movies that I talk about. I mean, and you know, you mentioned those are you know, three biggies that I talk about, but I mean, there's movies that involve esoteric Christianity and theosophy and, uh, you know, numbers and Kabbalah and God knows what all. Uh, that, like I I'm said, interested in that too. That all sounds interesting. But what I wanted to ask you is like, what I, what I also found out about alchemy is, and I'm not a mason or anything, I, so I don't have as much knowledge as you, but I found that there was the book called The Alchemist and it's about the transmutation of consciousness, right? It's like, isn't that also what alchemy is about, the transmutation of consciousness? Right. Well, that, that goes back to what the, you know, like philosophical alchemy. Uh, of course, alchemy on its base level was, um, you know, the transmutation of base metal into gold. Of course, you had philosophical alchemists like Paracelsus, who you're absolutely correct, where saw alchemy, and this is what Carl Jung talks about also, is that it wasn't, that it was symbolic, that it was basically the, 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 the transmutation of ignorance into wisdom. So, you know, you became, you know, a higher, you know, you had higher consciousness, you were more wise. Um, one of the things that I kind of point out, um, and this, this is kind of where you get into a little hair splitting with this, um, with, with Gnosticism and alchemy, because they do run parallel. Uh, the medieval alchemists based their philosophies on the Gnostics, which means to know. Um, the, the alchemical movie usually involves a total transmutation of the character. Like I said, where they start as one thing and then they wind up as something else at the end. Then you get into the Gnostic film, um, and this runs parallel with the alchemical movie, only it's a little slightly different, where the, the character, the protagonist, starts as, starts as one thing and then has like an epiphany or a revelation or awakening, and they're wiser for it. And this is kind of what's going on in the Masonic Lodge rituals. Um, I categorize that as more of a, a case of gnosis than I do of alchemy, but it's hair splitting and they do run parallel. Yeah, and uh, some of the more popular films, I saw, heard you talk about this in another podcast, of Gnostic cinema that seemed to like happen between 97 and 2001. And I wrote down The Matrix, The Dark City, The Truman Show, Donnie Darko, Fight Club, Vanilla Sky. Why do you think around this time, do you think this was when consciousness was changing? Or do you think this is just when directors had great ideas? 
Yeah, I mean, it, that's a great question. I, I've I wrestled with this. I've I wrestled with this in Cinema Symbolism Three. I mean, it is. You do have this rash of Gnostic movies coming out right at the turn of the uh, millennium, and I just don't think that is a coincidence. I mean, I definitely do think it has to do with sort of a, a changeover. It's. I think it's an example of the microcosm interacting with the macrocosm. You know, as above, so below. Perhaps you know an astrological changeover from the House of Pisces to Aquarius, that's what I've always talked about. Um, and, or, you know, that's what seems to be going on, at least in my opinion, because you do have this rash of Gnostic films and it is just amazing, like you said that, and you rattled off a lot of them that, you know, fall in this, you know, four or five year time period. Um, and it's all, the, it's all the Gnostic films we always, I always wind up talking about, you know, like, and you name them off, I won't repeat them, but you do have this, um, you know, the, 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 the same theme running through all of them and what what is, really uncanny about it um is when you look at those movies i mean how many of them not all of them but how many of them you know when they deal with coming to consciousness a reawakening an epiphany a revelation a lot of those movies also seem to foreshadow 9 11 um which was still a few years away but i i can't i mean I, i've developed some theories on that um why that seems to be happening um i'm actually it's one of the things i'm asked about more than anything else so much so that I'm actually, I've actually started outlining Cinema Symbolism 4 um, right now, and I'm actually going to do a whole chapter on Hollywood in 9-11. Well, you know uh, what? I got something to say. You know what else is interesting? And I was going to ask you about this. I, it's, it's, this is just really uncanny, and this is off the topic of cinema, but it has a little bit to do with the topic. Like, what I'm about to say is, like, when you think about, like, I'm a big, I listen to a lot of hip hop. I grew up in the 80s and 90s, okay? But if you think about like, even just, okay, just like the Notorious Big from 1996, time to get paid, blow up like the World Trade. Like there were rappers referencing the World Trade Center blowing up back in the 90s too. And so it wasn't just film. Was it a New York thing? Was it a film thing? Was it a rap thing? Was it a consciousness thing? Was it everything? What, what do you, what, do you know what I'm talking about? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you do find when you're getting around 9-11, you do what, what I'm finding out is when I when I'm out, when I'm working on this chapter, when I when I the, the, the farther back you go, the less I think it's more it's 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 more skepticism and, you know, probably more of a coincidence. But you're right. When you get into like the five year countdown beforehand, when you're starting like around 94, 95, 96, especially 96, 97 onward, that's when you really start having to pay attention. And there are these. What I found was in doing this and writing this and researching it is making a laundry list of all the examples of 9-11 of five years beforehand in cinema. Just making a laundry list of it doesn't really seem it, it, it's in a, it, it's it's not interesting. I mean, it's interesting, but there's more to it. It's when you start piecing and breaking down like the numbers and the, you know, and, and just how it just really none of it seems to add up. And it just all seems to be this countdown pointing towards this event on 9-11-01. I mean, like you mentioned the thing with B.I.G. I mean, you can look at other examples. I mean, that aren't related to, um, that aren't related to, to movies or pop culture. I mean, for example, in 1999, we, I mean, this is two years beforehand, we had the Columbine shooting. Um, the one shooter, uh, Eric, or what's his name? Um, Eric Harris, I believe it was. Um, he wrote a journal entry. He actually had a journal entry where he, he said, I want to, hijack a plane loaded in, you know, loaded with explosives and fly it into the World Trade Center. This is in 1998. Wow. What makes That's this even insane. more, what makes this even more eerie is his, his cohort 
uh, Dylan Klebold was born on September 11th, 1981, 20 years to the day. I mean, so, you know, then you get into the whole thing with the 9-11 and the numbers, um, you know, and I mean, that's really kind of startling where, I mean, you know, 9-11, you know, you, you start looking at the numbers repeating. Um, I mean, I think the one the one flight hit between like, you know, the 77th and 93rd, 93rd floor, you had flight 93 in, in Shanksville, you had flight 77 out of Dulles, flight 77 hit the Pentagon, the Pentagon was dedicated on September 11th, 1941, 50 years earlier, and is uh, 77 feet high. I mean, it's just these numbers that just don't add up. I mean, it just does not add up. And it's just fascinating to me, just all this, if, if, when, when you really start breaking it down and looking at it, at least in my opinion, I mean, it really does feel like you're looking at like a computer simulation, just with all these numbers and these coincidences. That we're that living in a simulation. Up. Yeah, because it seems like if you look at even like things like remote viewing, like we can almost, we can access like these Akashic records in life, like, and we can sometimes see the future. People can predict events. People can, like I said, remote view people i mean this is not uncommon right this is like it's it's like some there's something tapped into the universal consciousness that people were able to access and maybe know things and it comes out in creativity like films and music and stuff like that right yeah i mean that that's one of the things i i argue in my books is um i i i try to account for it i mean and you know when you're looking at something like 9-11 and, and you know the countdown to it and you know i just gave you some examples there's much, many more in films and there's many of these in the, in the in the Gnostic films, like you know, Fight Club, The Matrix, Donnie Darko, Vanilla Sky. Well, can you Sky. talk about those? Because I'd love to hear like. What oh yeah, sure. I, sure. I think that's so interesting. Yeah, well, well, let, let's just break down some of the 9/11 um, imagery in films right up, right? You know, you know, the run up to it. I mean, you have The Matrix uh, with Keanu Reeves, the very first one, uh, which you know, you know, which again it revolves around you know consciousness. You know, it's the Gnostic theme of being trapped in the false reality. The, the real world is fake. Um, this, of course, is a, is a you know, textbook Valentinian Gnostic thread. The material world is fake. It's an illusion. It's put there by a, a crafty demiurge to trick you, to keep you immured in matter. Um, and, of course, this is what he finds out. I mean, literally, he wakes up and finds out that reality is fake. Um, and in that movie, if, if you watch the scene with Hugo Weaving, um, Neo Anderson's passport actually expires on September 11, 2001. I mean, it's the exact date. Um, I mean, that's just uncanny. You know, that's just so strange. You know, you have this movie of death, you know, the death of the self awakening to a higher consciousness. You know, this whole thing with 9-11 seems to be synced to the end of the age of Pisces, the new age of Aquarius, you know, the, the death of the old consciousness, the awakening of the new consciousness. Some people, and I, I was at first loathe to kind of come around to this, but, you know, you know, many people say that this new consciousness in the Aquarian age is Luciferian. Um, that seems to be, I, when I first heard that, I was like, oh, get, you know, get out of here with that. But the more and more I, you look around, you really do begin to see maybe there is something to this. Um, you, so you have the, the, the countdown in, I mean, you have the uh, passport in, in uh, the Matrix. In Fight Club, which is again, I think 99, 98, um, you have the destruction. I mean, my God, you have the destruction of the financial towers at the end of the movie. Tyler Durden refers to it as ground zero. Um, you have the space monkeys destroying the piece of corporate art, which is clearly lifted from the sphere, you know, is a copy of the sphere from the World Trade Center, which is, you know, which was destroyed in Fight Club. I mean, it was, you know, bombed, you know, badly damaged on 9-11. Um, so you have that going on. Um, and Donnie Darko, and it was funny, too, because if you listen to interviews with Richard Kelly, 
Um, Kelly actually blamed Donnie Darko's poor box office performance on, on Donnie Darko. And in that one, you had an engine of an airplane crashing through um, Donnie's bedroom uh, ceiling, and it goes right through an American flag. Um, and, and, and Richard Kelly actually blamed that scene um, on the poor box office performance. And then you have Vanilla Sky uh, with Tom Cruise, again, another Gnostic film. Uh, you know, he's living in a false reality. Um, this was a movie that was filmed pre-9-11. It was a- released after 9-11. I, think, believe it, I believe it was released in December of 2001, I want to say. And in that film, um, at the very end of it, um, spo- spoiler alert for everybody, um, in order for Tom Cruise to get out of the false reality that he's in, he actually has to, ass- well, he does, doesn't actually, he does, he ascends to the super high building in New York City, actually overlooking the World Trade Centers, and he has to leap off of it. Um, I mean, it's, you know, when you watch it, I mean, it's the first thing you think of is 9-11. And, and the director of the film, and this was another one, um, when that movie was being test screened, everyone wanted him to take that scene out. And he didn't. He didn't cave in. And it, I, I'm glad he didn't because it really resonates when you watch the film. But, um, yeah, I mean, those are just some examples of cinema, pop culture, you know, predicting everything that, you know, went on that day. Uh, you know, you have the date, um, you know, your plane crashing, you know, you have, um, uh you know, uh, the, the, you know, what I just said. Um, and then another one that's good, and it's not a Gnostic film, but it came out in 2000, was The Patriot with Mel Gibson. Uh, if you watch that movie, at the very beginning of it, um, he's weighing the chair, the wooden chair. And he, um, he, um, he, he weighs it, and it weighs nine pounds, 11 ounces. And then he sits on it, and it comes crashing down. And then another one that was uh, also in the 90s was The Big Lebowski. Um, with the date on that is September 11th, um, which is curious. Um, you know, and they mentioned George Bush associated with the date. So, um, you know, it, it's just it's just too much. As a lawyer, it's just too much um, evidence at, where you're clearly out of the realm of, of, of coincidence with this. So then the next task is how do you account for it? And I get into that in the books as well. What about The Simpsons? Didn't that have 9-11 symbolism in it as well? The Simpsons is another one. Um, that that's another one where it was an episode called Homer versus New York, New York City, um, and this is where Bart Simpson waves the money in front of the magazine, and and nine eleven is on the magazine. The World Trade Centers make up the number eleven. Wow. What makes it, and what what makes it so strange and even stranger is, and I, I'd have to pull the book out. I can't remember, but that move that that episode of The Simpsons, it syncs with Fight Club and nine eleven because. I believe the episode of The Simpsons, I mean, they're synced almost to the day. I think that episode was released on like September 21st, 1996. And then Fight Club was released September 21st, you know, 1998. You know, I mean, it's almost this almost spot on 10 day off countdown with when these things are being released also. when you And that that's something else I talk about is the time sequencing of these movies. They are all, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them are in September, which is also eerie. That's amazing. Now, why do these occult symbols that are being placed in these movies have power? And is it creating something, would you say? Like, um, would some say that they have power? And is it creating a a false archetype of of what we think? And and is that creating the event? Like, do you think all these things that, you know, uh, were said about 9-11 possibly click? You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, I think I think so. Right. It's a case of, is it life imitating art or, or art prophesizing life almost? Um, you can kind of, there's several paths you can go, roads you can travel down with this. For starters, I mean, let me just say this. I mean, a lot of the symbolism is being placed there intentionally. 
Um, I find it to be very powerful. I find it to be very moving. Um, some people, you know, some people don't. It probably goes right by them. But I think, you know, when 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 one of the reasons it's being done is it heightens the movie. I mean, you know, it, it turns it into mythology. I also talk about in the books, this is not new to Hollywood. Um, you will find occult imagery, occult themes, uh, things you wouldn't even believe going on in the works of Shakespeare, Mozart, Herman Melville, Edgar Allan Poe, um, Nathaniel Hawthorne. Um, you know, this predates Tinseltown. It's a very powerful medium. You know what um, I wanted to say? There was a great show. I It was like a, a series. It wasn't a movie. It was a series I watched on um, Netflix with um, Kevin Bacon, and it was called The Following where there's a serial killer who has a cult and he's using Edgar Allan Poe's symbolism to carry out his murders. Have you heard of this? No, I haven't seen it. It's good. And you should check it. I think it would be right up your alley. And I think you would find a lot in particularly you would find a lot in that. I mean, but some of it's like right out in the open. And he's like, they like kind of tell why the killer is referencing this Edgar Allan Poe thing. So it's kind of like symbolism. But there could be some hidden things in there as well. It's called, Falling, and it was an excellent show. It starts off as a cult, and it starts off as a guy who's a murderer, and then he builds up a falling while he's in jail, you know, because, you know, people right. for some reason have this. And then when he gets out of jail, he somehow gets out of jail and he starts a cult, and he, they're all killing people, and they're, and they're referencing Edgar Allan Poe, and it's, it's just interesting. If you, you get a chance, check that out. It's, it's definitely, it's definitely cool. But, uh, what I was going to ask you, one thing I didn't want to forget is I, in another podcast, you talked about Platonism, which goes back into Plato, and how could that relate to modern esoteric symbolism in movies? What, what was it? What was the word? Platonism. Well, going back to Plato. Oh, Pl Plato. Oh, this is like Neoplatonic thought. Sure. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, you, you, you know, you get a lot of, um, you know, when, when you're dealing with a lot of religion and movies, um, you know, you were, you were, you know, it's sort of like theosophy. You, it's a word you can't use anymore because it's associated with, you know, with Madame Blavatsky. But when you get into mystical Christianity, Plato, I talk about Plato in, in, in the idea of the creating is a, a form of divinity. Um, and this is echoed in the Hermetica. And this, what you're asking ties into my theory as to how some of this stuff, how some of this imagery uh, relates to how it gets into film. What I, it, it ties into what Carl Jung said with the uh, collective unconscious that essentially um, all this archetypal in imagery is inherited. It's all part of our subconscious minds. What I, hypothesize, and that's all it is, is a hypothesis, is that through creation, through filming a movie, through making something, through this creative, highly creative endeavor, could the collective unconsciousness um, somehow be working in reverse, where through creativity, you're, you're somehow tapping some sort of ethereal divine presence and somehow putting prophecy in your films that comes out to be true. This is one way I try to explain the 9-11 imagery. Um, yeah. You know, of course, you can go down a more sinister road that, you know, maybe the CI was in on it. Um, that seems, you know, more less likely to me as a lawyer. I mean, I would need more evidence of that. But what what fascinates me is um, when you, you know, when, when you start looking at it through the lens of the collective unconscious and Young and Plato, um, it gives the movie and it gives the symbolism more of a supernatural vibe. I mean, it, 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 you, you begin to understand, at least in my from my perspective, that the imagery appearing in film might be as a result of some sort of supernatural phenomenon, um, yeah. which is, you know, which is, I think, more interesting than anything else. Yeah, I wanted to talk about Kubrick because I, I would say that maybe Kubrick's one of the best examples of putting this symbolism into films. And 
two films that come to mind that you talked about in other podcasts were Eyes Wide Shut and The Shining. And, you know, I thought what was interesting was that, that Stephen King didn't even write The Shining that way. And that you, you talk about this, that Kubrick intentionally put that stuff in there. And then Eyes Wide Shut, we can get into after that. But that's those are two that I really wanted to bring up. And Kubrick himself, yeah. if you could get into that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Stephen King hated Kubrick's vision of The Shining so much so. Uh, you probably remember this. I certainly do. That in 1996, Stephen King actually purchased the TV rights back from Warner Brothers and put out a TV mini-movie called The Shining, uh, which I think starred Rebecca De Mornay. It, it aired on network TV. Uh, it was in the mid-90s, 1995, 96, I want to say. Um, Kubrick's, Kubrick's version of The Shining is, is, is one of the best examples you will ever find of um, esoteric tropes and imagery in, in, in film because there's so much going on in it. Um, the movie is about, when, when you watch Kubrick's movie, it's about repetition. Um, it's about reincarnation. The same events, the, the, the uh, Overlook Hotel is an Ouroboros. It's a serpent biting its tail because everything that keeps happening over and over and over and over again. Um, so to convey this, to convey this, um, this Ouroboros, tr- Kubrick picks certain tropes, including numbers, and he just keeps repeating things over and over and over again. I mean, he just blasts your subconscious mind with repetition um, and, and, and doubles and duality. And, and he, he's constantly doing this um, just to convey this idea of, of things happening again and again and again, and everything is a double it repeats. It's, it's always, you know, it's, it's happening once again and again and again. I mean, you just look at the movie from start to finish. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I got in the one book, I mean, it's just a laundry list of everything he repeats. Um, I mean, there's two sets of twins. Um, you know, there's two typewriters, there's two tennis balls. Um, I mean, he repeats numbers all over the place. 12 is a number that he likes to use. Um, I mean, Jack hits the door with the axe 12 times. He throws the ball against the wall 12 times. Uh, you know, they take 12 turns in the hedge maze. So Kubrick in the film is constantly blasting your subconscious minds, your subconscious mind with, with repetition. And then you get into the whole thing. Then there's a whole thing with alchemy in the movie um, where Jack Torrance starts as sort of this failed writer. And then by the end of it, he's the psychopath. So you have a transition of the self. Um, and so you have to look at the alchemical elements um, going on and the, and the different symbolisms relating to al- alchemy um, in the movie. Um, and then you have another element. It's a multi-layered movie. Uh, then you have the whole idea of, um, you know, sort of the dark side of America, where the overlook is built on the Indian burial ground and, you know, all the best people come here. And it's, you know, it, it sort of represents the dark side of America with America taking over the, the Native American, uh, the tribes and kind of pushing them off. Uh, so you've got that, that vibe going on in it. And then, of course, you have um, the idea that Kubrick worked for NASA at some point and staged or released film. I was just going to ask you about this. Right. Yeah, there's the moon landing stuff in there, right? Uh, the kid has a NASA T-shirt on in there, right? I'm- well, yeah, it's an Apollo 11 uh, sweatshirt. And the, the, the whole thing with that is, um, is, is the theory is that Kub- they actually went to the moon, but Kubrick could have filmed the guys jumping around on a soundstage. You know, and it, it was Kubrick, you know, was the guy that filmed it. At, at first, this sounds somewhat far-fetched, but there's actually um, evidence to suggest otherwise. Uh, number one is, the idea is that um, the government saw his work with Strange Love and things like 2001, and were very impressed with it, and thought, okay, this is the guy who could, could pull this off. Um, so, 
the idea is that Kubrick is showing you in The Shining when Danny steps up, stands up with the Apollo 11 sweater on and then goes to room 237. Kubrick changed the number of the room. I believe in the book it's 213 or maybe 217, but Kubrick actually changed it. Um, if you add the numbers together, you get the number 12, which repeats. If you multiply them, you get the number 42, which also repeats. Um, and the little boy goes into the room, 237. I believe it's 42. But um, and it, one of the main reasons he picked that number for, for that room is um, back in the late 70s, the moon was 237,000 miles from Earth. So the idea was that the kid was wearing the Apollo 11 sweatshirt and was going to the moon. And this was Kubrick's way of telling the world, hey, I'm the guy who filmed, you know, the, the stage, the, the moon landing footage. What makes this particularly um, interesting and creepy is it's the movie um, that Kubrick made before The Shining um, was a movie that came out in the mid-1970s called Barry Lyndon. Um, and believe it or not, um, this is kind of like a smoking gun on this. Uh, Lind uh, Lyndon, Kubrick actually used NASA technology to film that movie. What he did was he wanted to film scenes that were only illuminated by candlelight. Um, and it couldn't be done. The candles don't throw out. If you just go into a dark room and light candles, it doesn't work. Um, they don't throw enough, off enough light. If you, if you go back and watch older movies from like the 40s and 50s, if you see people sitting around, you know, like a, with a candle lit, candle on the table, there's always an off, off stage, off screen light shining down on them. Kubrick didn't want to do that. He wanted to film everything by candlelight. Believe it or not, NASA actually had developed a lens that allowed you to do this. And Kubrick actually barred that lens and he, he turned it around, he twisted it around a little bit. So when you watch Barry Lyndon by Stanley Kubrick, you're actually watching a film that was made with NASA technology. And of course it begs the question, you know, well, you know, how, how would Kubrick have gotten access to NASA technology? And the answer is, and the question answer, it's, it answers itself. He works for him. I mean, you know, so that's how. Yeah, and you know who in who, uh, who agrees with you uh, completely on this thing? He gives more of a director's view of it. Is uh, Jay Widener, who I think he's a really respected um, director. He kind of gets into ufology too. He was on Art Bell a couple times, but um, Jay Widener says a lot about the front facing uh, directing and the is, is compared to rear facing at that time. And he gets into a lot of different stuff, but you get into more like the cinematic stuff. So. I, I love getting both views on it, but both are saying that something's going on there with the moon landing. Um, and uh, he gets more into the moon landing itself being like a hoax. He thinks we might have went to the moon, but he thinks that they couldn't film it there or something. So they did this to give it to the public to make it look like we went to the moon. I don't know. It's it's pretty it's it's fishy to me. What are your thoughts like on the whole moon landing? Yeah, I mean, it, uh, it could be real. I mean, it, it would strike me that they probably went but couldn't film there. So they, they retain Kubrick to, you know, film the guys jumping around on a soundstage. That, to me, seems more plausible than anything. Whether they fake the whole thing or not, I don't know. Um, I would need to see some evidence of that. But there definitely is some smoke and fire with Kubrick, you know, with, uh, you know, with, with, with it. I mean, it, you know, and like I said, the Barry Lyndon is the smoking gun on it. Yeah. And then with his final film, Eyes Wide Shut, there's a lot in this, like, um, with the Christmas lights, and what do you think, like, uh, two things in general, what do you think he was trying to say to the public in Eyes Wide Shut, and, and then if you could explain the whole thing with the Christmas lights after that? Yeah, I mean, sure, this was Kubrick's final movie, and it's sort of what you would want to call sort of the granddaddy of the Illuminati films, um, you know, where you clearly have this secret, you know, sex magic cabal running running the show. Um, 
and and it's it's one of those movies, at least in my opinion, when you watch it, it's very slow moving. I think it's very boring. Um, but I think Kubrick does that on purpose. And I, I think the reason he does it on purpose is he's trying to convey to the audience to watch the movie symbolically, not literally. Um, yeah. And the one the one thing that, like I said, if you, when you, when you sit down and watch the movie, the one thing that he just plasters the screen with is these gaudy Christmas lights. I mean, you can't miss them. They're in every scene. And it's not the little subtle white ones. It's the, you know, bright, big, red, green, purple ones. Um, and, you know, he surrounds, then he surrounds these Christmas lights um, with, um, you know, sort of the evils of mankind, drug addiction, prostitution, uh, child sex trafficking, pornography, drug addiction, alcohol abuse. Um, you know, when it, whenever this turns up on screen, it's these Christmas lights accompany it. Um, but then you move to the Somerton Mansion, and this is, of course, the, the Illuminati hangout. Um, and, and, of course, there are no Christmas lights. Um, and again, he, he does a couple things to convey, you know, you know what, what he's doing by removing the lights as he's showing you this is where the real evil is. I mean, then you get some some really kind of, you know, dark imagery going on with with Red Cloak when he casts the magic circle. He does it counterclockwise. That's called Wittershins. That's black magic. Um, of course, the the music is, I think, a Gregorian can't play backwards. Of course, this conjures the exorcist and, and the demonism with that. So, I mean, he presents this very dark, demonic um, atmosphere around the whole Somerton mansion. And the idea is what he's trying to convey to you is this is where the real evil is. This is nothing compared to, you know, child prostitution. You know, I mean, they may be bad enough, you know, alcohol addiction, prostitution, child pornography, as bad as that in as bad as they are. It's nothing compared to what's going on in Somerton. So that's what, you know, that's what I get out of it anyway, right? And, and that's one of the great, that's one of the great things. Let me just wrap up. I love about Kubrick is uh, the, the one thing that, you know, and this is one of the, you know, sort of the, the, the hallmarks, the telltales of really an expert is he doesn't use the same um, techniques over and over again. I mean, when he's in one movie, he knows what to use. Then he goes to another movie and he uses something different. Um, that to me is really the hallmark of a real craftsman. And that's one of the reasons I love Kubrick so much. Yeah, yeah, and and you kind of went over it fast. So could you go over how when he gets into Somerton Mansion, how he shows signs of black magic? I know something going counterclockwise is a sign of black magic, right? I, I I was really interested in that. Sure, right. It's when if you watch if you watch it when the women are are for, are in the circle, and I believe they're topless. Um, the 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 red cloak has the incense burner, the censer, and is casting the circle he's moving counterclockwise he's moving backwards um and that's what in, in the world of the occult that's called vittershins um and that denotes black magic if you count it if you go the other way if you go with the motion of the sun that's white magic you're okay on that but when you do it counterclockwise it's what's called vittershins um and that denotes black magic that and then, is so amazing thank oh that is wow that's sorry i'm sorry i'm so sorry that's okay I'm so excited because that was amazing. That's such amazing drop, amazing knowledge. Um, but sorry, can you you can go ahead. No, that's okay. No, no, that's okay. No, I'm, I'm, you know, the next time you watch the film, by all means, check it out because you'll see it as surely as I do. I mean, and, and like I said, when when I analyze the film, when I analyze these films, I mean, some of this stuff is very subtle. I mean, it's like in your face, but it's like you know, it's 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 um, you know, it's it's very it's very subtle. But when you start piecing it together, you can see what's kind of going on. I don't know if you saw it yet. I know we were talking off off air um, before uh, the show started, but you were you were saying uh, you were saying to me, and of course you're entitled to your opinion. You were saying you weren't a fan of the um, some of the newer movies. Um, I would urge you. I don't know if you're into comic books. Um, by all means, check out the new Batman movie with uh, 
Robert Pattinson and, and Zoe Kravitz and Paul Dano. Uh, that movie is overloaded with all sorts of imagery in it. Um, I loved it. I thought the movie was fantastic anyway. Um, but there's all sorts of going uh, things going on in that. And a lot of them are so subtle to pick up on. And, and that's what I love. I mean, it, t- it takes... It takes me, Robert Sullivan, more, more than one time to watch a film to pick up on all of it. Uh, many times it's, it's more than once. Um, you know, I mean, it's always more than once, especially when you get into this high level of detail that these um, filmmakers like to embed in their movies. Well, what, what are the, if you don't mind me asking, like, and I'm oh, sorry, I'll let you take a drink because I know you're talking a lot. <laughs> no, it's all right. A lot. We've only been going a half hour, but you covered a, a lot. And I don't have that many questions left. But- right. What uh, what what all do they cover in the new Batman? And I was going to ask you about The Exorcist too, but um, what are the subtle signs to look for? Because a lot of people are going to go look for that new Batman, um, because just because it's a new movie. But what what should we be looking for in that movie in particular? Right. Right. The whole the, the whole movie the whole movie is has to do with expressing. I mean, the whole movie is just related with biblical imagery. Um, for instance, Paul Dano, who plays the Riddler, is constantly talking about the day of judgment coming, the end times, the day of judgment. Um, the movie takes place over seven days, uh, seven days of creation. Um, Paul Dano plants seven, as the Riddler plants seven bombs, and of course, this causes the flooding. Um, in, in Gotham City, of course, we're thinking of the flood of Noah, um, or not, but I, I think it is. You get the whole notion of Batman being the Christ figure, uh, the savior figure. Um, and a lot of times, and this may sound a little corny, but I've watched the movie enough that I, uh, when, when he always is turning up on screen, he's kind of start startling people. And they always jump and say, oh, Jesus, you know, Jesus, you know, it's you, Jesus. When you watch it enough, you almost realize they're calling him that. It's not, a, it's not a sign of exclamation. They're actually referring to Batman as a Christ figure. They're actually calling him Jesus as he's, as he's the savior figure. Um, you have the, when, when you watch it, uh, I mean, again, it's just overloaded with religious imagery. Uh, the Riddler sings Ave Maria a couple times. The movie opens with Ave Maria. Uh, when the Riddler's stalking the mayor, you look down and you see two nuns walk by. I love the imagery at the end um, when they're in the arena and Batman saves the people from being electrocuted. Um, and he falls down into the water below. And then he lights the red flare. Um, and he he pulls the piece of metal aside. And the people are hiding. And he sort of like leads them out with the red flare crossing the water. I mean, the only thing you can think of is Moses parting the Red Sea, leading the chosen people out of, you know, through the water. He's the deliverer. He's the savior figure, leading them to this new promised land of Gotham. I just found that very powerful and just... So, you know, I mean, just so much ties into the whole biblical undercurrents going on in, in that movie. I just loved it. I thought the movie was fantastic anyway. I mean, and then, you know, that's the biblical stuff. Then you've got references to Seven, uh, the David Fincher movie. You've got references to the Zodiac Killer. Um, when when the Riddler leaves the first uh, Halloween card um, for the Batman at the one murder scene, that card is actually modeled after the Halloween card that Zodiac Killer sent to Paul Avery at the San Francisco Chronicle. So just all sorts of imagery going on. There's a, one line in the movie, I can't remember what it is, where, um, where, they're, um, where, where, where they're reading the uh, Riddler's diary, his journal entry, and there is a line lifted almost verbatim from Seven, um, from one of the lines John Doe says. So you get a lot of you know serial killer reference, Zodiac killer, Jigsaw, John Doe 
We got the Bible, just so much going on in that movie. I, it's it's a movie I'm taking one in cinema symbolism for. Just absolutely loved it. Yeah, and Mark wanted, but you know, Mark who referred me to you, Mark Eddie, and I thank him so much oh, for yeah. that because he, I'm so glad he got us together because this is such an amazing show. Um, he wanted me to ask about The Exorcist, and he asked you about The Exorcist before. What are because that's a real evil movie, but like you know, there's a lot in that movie, correct? Oh yeah, it's funny because I've been working with I've been I've been talking to Mark now going on eight years. We're good friends. He helps me book shows, and I should I sent him uh, some some shows that if I've done and he's not aware of them. Uh, he's sort of my agent. Mark is uh, he's a great guy. Uh, I just absolutely love working with him. And whenever I go on a show, um, he always sends an email to the say, "Oh, it's yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, this is one of those few movies where you can actually say. Um, the devil lives in the celluloid. I mean, the movie is completely evil. Um, I love the film. I mean, it's just a masterpiece. Um, there's all sorts of psychological psyops going on in the thing. I mean, we can get into the whole thing with the sun. Uh, Blatty, Blatty worked for the CIA. And and the whole the whole psycho, psyop with the thing is it's, it's meant to quell the radicalism of the 1960s. Um, the whole the whole Exorcist movie is midwifer of the, to the decadence of the 1970s, um, where the two Jesuit priests, the sun priest, controlling the de demon, signifies the control of the government over the people, um, and to basically quell them, you know, to exercise the radicalism, the unruly demon um, at the end of the film. So on a, on a on a psychological level, as as a psyop, it works very effectively. Um, I mean, you get into all sorts of Manichaean themes in the thing, light versus dark, good versus evil. I mean, the movie begins in the heat of the Iraqi desert. It ends in the freezing cold. Um, you know, again, this is light versus dark, good versus evil. Um, the little girl is possessed by the evil demon. It's cold. It's frigid. So you have to send in the sun priest, the Jesuits. The next time you take a look, you're online, type Google Jesuit seal, and it's the sun. So it's, again, it's, it's, it's the idea of the sun driving out the darkness, the coldness, um, I love the foreshadowing. It has one of the best examples of foreshadowing you will ever find in a movie. Um, and this is something that uh, a filmmaker named Ari Aster picks up years later. I was just um, about to he, ask he, you about him. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, no, no, but 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 Aster, Aster, Ari Aster just loves demonic filmmaking. Um, and in The Exorcist, it's the scene where um, Father Karras is in the uh, recording studio in at Georgetown with. Uh, the language expert, and he's playing him the tape of the little girl speaking backwards. And he says, you know, what is this? What language is this? He says, it's English in reverse. And then, of course, he plays it backwards. If you look at the very beginning of that scene, they're standing behind a glass, and they're obviously in a language room. Above the above the window uh, is a Japanese word. And off the top of my head, I'd have to go look. But I believe the word is Tuskegee, um, or something to that effect. At any rate, that word is Japanese for help me. And of course, the very next scene is where Father Karras goes over into the bedroom, lifts up the little girl's sleeping gown, and there's help me plastered on her uh, stomach where the, you know, where the spirit's trying to talk to her. That's one of the all-time great examples of foreshadowing um, in a film. This is something years later that Astor will pick up on in both Hereditary and Midsummer because he loves using art of memory mnemonics, uh, foreshadowing in his films, um, and this, I believe, stems from that scene in The Exorcist. Yeah, I was going to ask you about Midsummer and Ari Aster. For people that don't know, it's I was the film is about a uh, story revolves around a pagan cult called the Haraga, a mysterious group of Swedes who live off the land 
and they follow centuries-old ceremonies and rituals. And it's pretty demonic, correct? Oh, yeah. I mean, the movie, it's one of those movies. I mean, there's, you know, it's, I, I say, I've been on other radio shows, podcasts, and I've said, I can think of three movies where it's sort of like the devil lives in the celluloid. Um, you know, where, where when you watch it, you really do feel like you're watching something out of the demonic realm. The three movies are, of course, The Exorcist, Midsommar would be one of them, and of course, the third would be The Black Cat with Lugosi and Karloff, um, which is just an incredibly dark movie, uh, especially for the time frame that it came out. Um, and it's a great movie also because the Karloff character of Palomar Poltzig is a Crowley analog, um, is clearly based on Aleister Crowley. So, I mean, those three movies just, you know, kind of stick out to me as the demonic trio. Now, of course, you also have that demonic trilogy from the late 60s, early 70s of The Exorcist, Rosemary's Baby and The Omen, um, which are pretty satanic because they have the dystopian ending. Um, but yeah, Midsommar with Ari Aster, um, and I love Hereditary also. I mean, he, he really uses a lot of... The one thing he does in that movie in, in Hereditary, watch this the next time. I mean, he harkens back to the exorcist all over the place in that thing. Um, the movie involves demonic possession. Um, in the in the in Hereditary, the demon is Payman, which is the ninth demon in Ars Goetia, the lesser key of Solomon. Um, when when they go up in the attic at the end, um, you'll see um, headless, a headless uh, mannequin. Um, and of course, when when Chris McNeils goes into the attic in The Exorcist, what's up there? But what else but a headless mannequin? So that, that, is, that is intentionally drawn to tweak your subconscious mind. It's what's called the art of memory. Um, it's an occult technique. It's an occult device that's designed, you don't know it, of course, to, to draw you back to that movie and invest in your subconscious mind, the horror of the exorcism, of the exorcist, excuse me, into hereditary. Astor's a master at doing this. He does it in Midsommar as well. But hereditary, I mean, it's just one thing to the exorcist after another, after another. Um, very dark filmmaker. Yeah, yeah, I want to ask you this, like, you know, both The Exorcist and Midsommar, they deal with like demons and demonology and, and like you said, the lesser key of Solomon and all that stuff, pretty heavy. And like, oh, as you're <laughs> all from all your studies as a Freemason and, you know, you went to Oxford and you're you're a very well studious person. Like, what are your thoughts on what demons might be like? Do you think because I've interviewed Dr. Richard Allen Miller and he thinks that he studied like the Babylonian demonology, and he he, th he says that in that they say that they might be lesser <clears throat> qualities of man, you know, like some of our bad qualities. But like, or do you think demons are actually physical things that you know can really possess people? Or are you on the fence about it? Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, it, it could be multiple things. I mean, Aleister Crowley said the same sort of thing. He thought the demons in Ars Goetia were parts of your subconscious mind that you could somehow stimulate and awaken. I mean, yeah, I mean, if, if you believe, you know, I mean, demons could be real, you know, what do, what do they call them in the one movies, the Conjuring movies, um, inhuman spirits? Sure, I mean, yeah, I mean, that, that could absolutely exist, um, separate from, you know, the things that are enumerated in things like the Ars Goetia, which, which are, are more, seem to me more es esoteric, you know, qualities related to humankind than actual physical demons, but maybe they are. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I've never, I've never summoned a demon. I've never tried to summon a demon. I would never... I would never meddle with something like that. Um, I, I know people who have, um, you know, experimented with, with that stuff. And, you you know, they tell me, you know, it's bad news. Just stay away from it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, my, my attitude is, I mean, I think there's something to it. I, I do think there is probably demons in this world. And, you know, you know, I mean, I definitely put it to you like this. I believe in consciousness after death. And if you have a God figure and angels and archangels and, denominations and things like that, then you have, you know, fallen angels as well. 
I absolutely agree. I, I, I mean, this is totally off the subject, but I, you know, right. I, I do a lot of shows on out-of-body experiences and near-death experiences, and I really believe that consciousness continues after death, and I believe that there are angels and demons. So I, I, I totally agree with you on that subject. That there could be this spiritual supernatural world that maybe we don't see. And even when people talk to spirits, did you ever notice like, and I talked to a lot of people like this and a lot of ghost investigations, like they'll talk to the spirit, but the spirit never tells them. It'll tell them what they were in the real life. It'll tell them what they did, this and that, but it'll never tell them what goes on in the afterlife. It's like a big secret that we need to figure out. Right. But we're not going to figure it out until we die. You know what I mean? Right, it's the greatest mystery of all because the the minute that it's solved is the minute that you can't tell anybody. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, it's insane. You know, it's so crazy, right? It is. I mean, it is. And you know, I mean, me personally, I mean, I, I've had experiences in this world with ghosts, with UFOs. So, I mean, you're not. I'm not really a skeptic anymore on it. I mean, I definitely believe there's consciousness after death. What it is, I'm, I mean, I could. I mean, I, I, I'd be theorizing at that point. But, yeah, I mean, I definitely believe that there is some sort of consciousness after death. And, and you know, I've had experiences with uh, a, a ghost, and I actually had an experience with a UFO. So I'm a believer. Did you, could you talk a little bit about it? Or if you don't mind, I'd just love, no, I'd love I, to hear your experience. Like, No, no, I'll talk about both of them. I've been on, I've been on other shows, and, and I, I have no problem talking about it. Um, the, the ghost experience happened at Gettysburg College. I was in my senior year there. This was in April or May. Let's see, it was probably April, of maybe March. It was March, April, or May of 95. I want to say April. Um, and I was at the library, the Musselman Library on campus. And I, at that point in time, they were, it stayed open 24 hours a day because finals were coming up. People were working at the, you know, projects. You know, the, the semester was coming to a close. So the library stayed open 24 hours. And I was over there doing something, researching something, writing, doing something. I can tell you I wasn't drinking and I wasn't high or anything like that. I was sober as a judge. I was over there. I want to say it was probably around 1.30 in the morning. And I finally decided to call it a night. And I left Musselman. It was pitch black. I was quiet. You know, you could, you know, tumbleweeds and crickets. Um, I was walking back to my fraternity house, uh, Lambda Chi Alpha, which is in a neighborhood, which is about three blocks off of campus, just in a residential neighborhood. And I could have taken two routes. And the route I decided to take was by the was by the uh, cafeteria, by the by the dining hall, um, which was of course closed. Um, it's pitch black out. There's not a soul around, and I'm walking down this road. I could look it up on on Google. I can't remember the name of it. And as I'm walking along, again, there's no one around. Pitch black, no cars, nothing. About I want to say about five to six, seven feet to my left, I see a light, um, just kind of out of the corner of my eye. It's just this bright light. And my initial reaction was it's maybe someone on a bicycle, like a bicycle headlight. That's what it struck me as. I didn't think it was a car because I couldn't hear anything. There was no motor running or anything. And I'm walking along and finally I stop and I turn and I look at this thing and about hovering, like I said, I want to say maybe about six, seven feet away from me in the middle of the road. I'm on the sidewalk. Probably about maybe three, four feet off the ground is this orb glowing kind of like orangish yellow hovering there. I want to say it's about the size of a grapefruit. Um, just hovering. And, and as I'm moving forward, it's, it's moving parallel with me. So, I mean, if I stop, it stops. If I take three steps forward, it's, it's moving with me. You know what I'm saying? It's, 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 yeah. mimicking, it's mimicking what I'm doing. And if I stop, it's not moving. So I'm standing there and I take about three steps forward and there it moves. And there it goes with me. I take about another two steps and there it goes. And at that point in time, it hit me. I thought this is something supernatural. 
there, there's no one around. There's no person associated with this thing. It's this thing hovering off the ground. At that point in time, I turned my back to it and just ran as fast as I could. Uh, <laughs> I would do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I got in. I got into my fraternity house. I shut the door. I never saw the thing again. Um, and when I got in the front doors, I'm in the living room. And, of course, you know, there's a couple of brothers up watching TV at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, 1.30, whatever time it was, middle of the night. And they, they say to me, they say, you looks like you just saw a ghost. And I said, yeah, I just did. Um, so that was my experience with the uh, world of, of ghosts and paranormal. My UFO encounter happened a few years earlier when I was still in high school, um, I believe. And what's funny with this is I have trouble remembering um, the, the actual time frame. I don't know if it's memory loss or if it was a time displacement thing. I was over at a friend's house. Um, I believe it was in the spring of 1998, I want to say. And I was over at a friend's house. This was a school night. Uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and we were working on a project that we, we it was like me and like three other people were over there because we, we were working together as a group and we had to do some sort of presentation. I was getting late. I was around, I guess, probably around 1030 at night. This was 1998. So I'm like, you know, 17 years old or whatever it is. Me, me and my buddy who drove me there, we decide to leave. So I, he gets in his car. I'm not going to name names. He gets in the car, I get in the passenger seat and we, we, we're leaving we're leaving my friend's house and we're driving down old Pimlico road in, in Baltimore County. You can go Google it. We're approaching falls road. Uh, back then there was no, now, nowadays, if you go to that intersection, there's a traffic light there back in the late eighties, there was no traffic light. It was just a stop sign. So as we're approaching, we're going downhill and there's this tree line in front of us and hovering over the tree line is the only way I can describe it is a black rectangle, probably 20 yards um, probably 20 yards in height, probably about 70 yards in length, and probably about 30 yards in, or maybe longer than that, 50 yards in width. That's like huge. a black rectangle uh, That's hovering there. Yeah, it's huge. It's huge. It's hovering there, half the size of a football field. Hovering there, has two bright headlights coming out the front of it, two headlight searchlights coming up down the bottom of it. It struck me when I'm looking, I'm coming down. And I said to my buddy, I said, you know, are you seeing this thing in front of us? He says, yeah, I see it. It's, it's, it's hovering. It's coming towards us as we're driving on the road towards it. And I'm That's saying amazing. to him, I'm like, are you, know, are you seeing this thing? And he's saying, yeah. And I said, you know, I said, this is nothing I've ever seen before. He says, I agree with you. So we, we get down to the stop sign. And at this point, this thing's over us. I roll down the window and I stick my head on. I could, it, it's, it's pitch black. There's not a sound. There's no propellers. There's no jet engine. There's no nothing. Completely silent. The headlights are still pointing down. And in the center of the thing are these red and green lights that are circling, just endlessly circling, these red and green lights. And I stuck my head out. I looked at it. And no noise. I mean, like I said, crickets and tumbleweeds. And I put my head back in. I said to my buddy, I said, you know, that's a UFO. I said, I said that's not any sort of aircraft. I've ever seen it's not a helicopter it's moving to things only moving about four or five miles an hour i mean just kind of like moving you know hovering right above the thing i said there's no engine there's no noise i said there's no wind it's there's propellers i mean this is some sort of you know ufo craft he agreed um and i remember when i got when we got up to my house i kind of lived up on a hill you could look out and still see it you could still look out and see it way out in the distance just moving slowly slowly over the tree line it struck me when it happened, um, and I still believe this to this day, it struck me, and I can just tell you only what I saw, it struck me as a, it was a government aircraft, like a top secret 
government aircraft that had been reverse engineered. That's what I thought it was. I thought this was something that had been, that was man-made, that was made with UFO technology. That's what it looked like to me. Yeah, because why would it have lights, right? Because, and, and also, they say that TR, I've had Jim Goodall on my show, that TR-3B is a, tri- a rectangle or a, a triangle, you know? like, And that's what they say yeah. the government craft is the TR-3B. So you might have seen an early version of the TR-3B is what I'm thinking, you know? Yeah, it could have been. It was a pure rectangle. It was solid black. It looked like a monolith. Big, big thing. And like I said, I mean, what was keeping this thing floating? Or like I said, no propellers, engine, nothing. It was on complete silent drive. Had headlights on it. Um, big, bright white headlights. These red and green lights hovering in the middle of it, on the belly of it. And um, it struck me as some sort of government-crafted aircraft made off of UFO technology. That's what it looked like to me. Yeah. And, and what's what's amazing is you're a Freemason. You know a lot of esoteric secrets, but there's so much that we're not being told, right? You know? Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. Um, I mean, even within the Masonic Lodge, I mean, the, the actual, I mean, you know, just, just on a base standpoint, and this is one of the reasons why I wrote my first book. I mean, the rituals themselves encode esoteric meaning, which most of the brothers um, are completely unaware of. Um, it's like, you know, they go through the ritual, but the meaning's been lost. Um, and, and, and that's, again, one of the reasons why I wrote the Royal Arch was to kind of restore this lost wisdom, um, you know, to try to understand what the ritual, you know, especially the third degree ritual is, is conveying. It's, it's the oldest, you know, archetypal imagery of all time, the dying and resurrected, you know, sun god man, as it were. Do you think these rituals go back to the Egyptian mystery schools? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, you're, you're dealing with, I mean, did these rituals go back? Yeah, I mean, whether it be the Egyptian, um, the Mithraic, the Aleutian mysteries. Yeah, I mean, I mean, no, no, the Orphic mysteries. Yeah, I mean, the, the rituals of Freemasonry um, incorporate a lot of Gnostic, esoteric, ancient mystery, you know, tropes, you know, themes in them. That's, I mean, I, I don't doubt that for a minute. I have two two more questions for you that I thought would be interesting to cover for the audience. Like one's sure. personal, and then one's when I heard you talk about another podcast. Um, the, the one was about James Bond, and I heard you say that that he might have been a representation of jo- John D and 007. Can you get into that? The loss, the esoteric meaning of 007. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, this is where the one where you have an esoteric influence upon an author. Um, Ian Fleming's, you know, was influenced by Aleister Crowley. Um, during World War II, uh, Crowley was a double agent working for uh, MI5, MI6, you know, British intelligence, counter-British intelligence. And his handler was none other than Ian Fleming. Um, and the James Bond movies are overloaded with esoteric imagery. I mean, Crowley turns up as Le Chiffre in Casino Royale and Blofeld. Um, there's one of the Blofeld, um, in one of the stories, Blofeld mimics Alistair Crowley. And of course, the 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 sigil of James Bond, 007, is lifted from... Queen Elizabeth's court astrologer, a man named John Dee, um, who went on an espionage mission with, for her to undermine um, Rudolf II and the Holy Roman Empire. And whenever he wrote, um, you know, communiques to her, to Walsingham, he would sign him 007. Um, it, was, it was a spyglass. Uh, it was two, two, two circles with a line over down the sign. It looked like 007. Um, and of course, the meaning of it was he was her eyes in the field or that the communique was for her eyes only. So this is just one example of, um, you know, of an esoteric, you know, hermit, you know, Crowley influencing Fleming, Fleming, the the author of James Bond. You also find it with P.L. Travers, um, the author of Mary Poppins. She was under the influence of Gurdjieff, George Gurdjieff, 
who is a Freemason. Of course, you'll find all kind of occult themes in the Mary Poppins stories. Yeah, a lot of Disney stuff. All Disney stuff has a lot of uh, esoteric stuff, right? It seems like it seems like they 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 kind of just went with that. Like it's, I don't even know how to explain it. Like those old movies are loaded with it, right? Yeah, but I mean, from Disney, it, it, it predates Disney. She was putting it in the stories because of Gurdjieff and, and mainly because of Gurdjieff, but Crowley also. I mean, the Mary Poppins character is a composite of different goddesses. Minerva, she has the owl-handled umbrella. Uh, the, the 17 Cherry Hill, if you add one plus seven, that's a reference to the number eight. That's what's called the Ogduad. Um, that's where Sophia, divine wisdom, dwells in Gnosticism. Um, 17 also... Um, uh, it's too long to get into, but it represents the Virgin, uh, excuse me, the Mary Magdalene, um, who is Pisces the fish. Um, so you have a lot of, I mean, this is all Travers, not Disney. Um, so, you know, you know, Gurdjieff influences Travers, Crowley influences Fleming. Very fascinating. I was just thinking, like, I'm a history buff. What was going on with, with me and the Roman Empire? Like, what was he trying to accomplish for MI5? And what time period was that, if you can remember? Like, was he trying to infiltrate the Roman well, Empire, or what was going on for the Queen? Well, no, John. Well, John D. predates uh, MI5 and MI6. He's in the uh, he's in the uh, 16th century. Um, he's in the 1500s. He was Queen Elizabeth's spy master and astrologer. Well, her spy master was Walsingham. He was a spy for her, and of course, um, you know, one one of her, you know, one of the, her arch nemesis would be the Holy Roman Empire, not the Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Empire of Rudolf II. Rudolph II was very much into the occult mysticism. He often entertained Giordano Bruno, people like that. And uh, John D was caught when when he John D showed up in uh, Prague. He met with Rudolph II and just fed him all these horrific horoscopes, trying to undermine him, trying to make him paranoid, um, trying to weaken his health. And this was, of course, done um, at the behest of. Um, of, of Queen Elizabeth, you know, trying to weaken her enemy. Um, you had a pop culture war going on um, with Queen Elizabeth um, and hermeticism. Um, the, you know, you know, the whole Elizabethan court was based on hermeticism, uh, Saturnian melancholy. Um, and of course, you know, her arch enemy, she was always trying to be assassinated by the Jesuits um, and, you know, the Roman Catholics. Um, this goes back to her father, Henry VIII. And of course, you had Phil, uh, what's his name, Kit Marlowe, the poet, who is constantly attacking her through pop culture. Um, Dr. Faustus is an attack on Christian Kabbalah and John Dee. Um, Tamburlaine is an attack, a direct assault on Queen Elizabeth her first, herself. And uh, the Jew of Malta is an attack on her physician, Rodrigo Lopez. Um, this is counteracted by a guy named Sir Francis Bacon, who wrote these plays under the name of William Shakespeare, where Prospero becomes John Dee and is this heroic figure. Um, so you had this entire pop culture war going on between Christopher Marlowe, Shakespeare, where, you know, Marlowe is trying to put her down through the bidding of the Jesuits, where Shakespeare is trying to uplift her. So is, uh, you know, Edmund Spencer with the Fairy Queen. So, like I said, this whole thing, using pop culture to manipulate minds, uh, mind control, this, you know, predates Hollywood by 500 years. And, and I want to ask you your opinion, like in, in the conspiracy world, there's a lot of like people that say like, there's a lot of heinous things going on with the Jesuits. What would you say about that? Like, do you think there's conspiracy to that? Or do you think there could be somewhat of an evil organization, even though they intend to, they well, intend to be holy? They're say they're for the, you know, the, the Pope and everything, but they're, I've heard stories, you know, I've heard Stan Deo told me he had a Jesuit enforcer chasing after him at one point, you know, like, 
Stan Deo was on the Art Bell show and stuff. He's a, he's a, he's, you know, I'm sure you might've heard of him. He said he had, you know, I don't know. I just want to get your thoughts on that. Well, the Jesuits were put in charge at the Council of Trent. I can't speak for him today because a lot of their power was undercut. I mean, the Jesuits got so out of control, the Pope banned them, I believe, in 17, suppressed them in 1792, I want to say. And it's a few years later, they reemerge as this group called the Bavarian Illuminati, which is the Jesuits under another name. I have um, a book right here, the, Bavarian, the Rise and Fall of the Bavarian Illuminati. I'd tell Grandma on my show, that's, that's, a, that's a really good thing. because a lot of people use the term Illuminati today, but they don't realize that it was an organization that was only in power for like 10 years, right? Yeah. And, and what the Jesuits are put in charge of the Counter-Reformation which is to destroy the Re- Reformation. So they're constantly going after, you know, the, the Reformation. Um, and, we, you know, where's the spearhead of that? It's England. Um, so, I mean, you know, the Jesuits burned London to the ground in 1666. Guy Fox and the gunpowder plots, a Jesuit conspiracy. Um, Freemasonry comes out of um, England in 1717. So the Jesuits undermine that um, with the high degrees of Freemasonry, which is designed to restore the stored pretenders back to the throne of England. So the, the Jesuits... You know, from their inception up until about, you know, the, until, until the end of the Napoleonic Wars, um, are really the Europe's version of the CIA and KGB. Um, they're just running around trying to undermine governments, especially Protestant governments. They're constantly, you know, uh, you know, going after the Protestant League. Um, you know, and you, you see, you know, the Catholic League, the Jesuits, you have these things boiling up that are, you know, counter to the Jesuits, like Freemasonry, like the Rosicrucians. Um, like characters like John D, Queen Elizabeth. So you had this whole thing going on with the Jesuits versus these guys. And like I said, you know, a lot of times it actually plays out in pop culture with the plays of Marlowe going con- running contrary to the works of people like Edmund Spencer. That's all part of the Counter-Reformation. Yeah. And then my last question, this is a personal one, was about Polanski. Like, um, it's weird because he was married to Sharon Tate and she gets murdered, but he makes movies like Rosemary's Baby. Do you think like the there was something to that or do you think it was just a happenstance that Sharon Tate got murdered? Well, I mean, I, I talk about it in the book. I mean, there is sort of this vicious cycle, um, you know, that, that surrounds this. I mean, and you know, it, it, it's just interesting. I mean, it's, it's, maybe it's a coincidence, but I mean, you have, you know, Manson and being Manson being inspired, inspired by the Beatles, um, you know, you know, to write, you know, you know, the white album, Helter Skelter, you know, of course this is what Manson, you know, inspired, you know, inspired him to kill Sharon Tate, you know, and then, you know, right, right, right at this time, you had the filming of Rosemary's Baby at the Dakota apartment, you know, where Satan is in this apartment building. And then years later, whatever it is, 12 years later, who's living in the Dakota apartment, John Lennon, the author of Helter Skelter, who dies there, gets assassinated. You know, it was kind of like the satanic, you know, you know, Ouroboros, where it was a cycle, it was like a satanic cycle almost surrounding Helter Skelter, the Dakota, John Lennon, the Beatles. Um, it's just, it's just very interesting. Um, I talk about it in cinema symbolism three, you know, you know, the whole idea of, um, you know, the sort of satanic cycle going on with the Beatles, Manson, um, Sharon Tate. Um, it's, it's interesting also because, um, you know, you know, uh, Sharon Tate was in a movie. Uh, it was one of her first movies called the eye of the devil. Um, and her name in that movie, she wears this uh, all-seeing eye emblem, um, and it, it's it's basically um, she's in this secret cult. It, it's very it's very much like the Wicker Man. She's in this cult where uh, you know has to do with a person has to die to renew the land. You know the crops will grow grand things things like that. It's very much like the Wicker Man, and she plays a character in that name, Odalie, 
um, which of course is the character of the Black Swan. And again, you know, you watch the movie with Natalie Portman, she turns into the demon at the end of it. Um, you know, she gets murdered. But, you know, again, it's just this endless, you know, what came first, the chicken or the cart, satanic, you know, cycle going on with the Beatles, John Lennon, Polanski, the Dakota. Very interesting. Do you think that idea of, 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 of someone having to die for the crops to grow and the land to be restored goes back to the Mayans? And that's where these filmmakers got that from. Because weren't the Mayans trying to kill people to bring their gods back and get their crops, crops to grow? It was, wasn't that why they were sacrificing people? Well, it, it's in Europe also. It, it's in Europe. Um, it, it, the, 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 those movies like The Wicker Man and Eye of the Devil, they come out of a book. Um, and the book is called The Golden Bow by J.G. Frazier, which has to do with these pagan customs um, that were, you know, popular in Europe, on the continent of Europe and in, in Britannia. And, you know, how they how they still exist to this day, you know, celebrations like Halloween, um, Samhain, Samhain, as it's pronounced, Christmas, uh, Midsummer, you know, you know, where, 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 you know, where do these come from? You know, and, you know, are there, you know, in some instances there are, they did involve human sacrifices to, you know, make, you know, to make the sun come back, you know, to make the crops grow. Um, if you're interested in that sort of stuff, by all means, take a look at the Fraser book. He, you know, he, he gets into, you know, you know, what are the meanings of these, um, you know, you know, what are the meanings of these celebrations? Of course, what he kind of fails to mention, and, and it's very surprising is they all, of course, it's the ecliptic. They all revolve around the sun. Um, you know, it's the heavens above, um, you know, all, 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 it, it's psychological, all, all the holidays are psychological. It's, 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 a, it's microcosmic of the macrocosm. Um, it's as above, so below. I mean, you don't want to light a Christmas tree or listen to Christmas music or drink eggnog on July 25th, no more than you want to watch horror movies or go out trick-or-treating on August 31st. There's a reason why those holidays fall when they do. Um, and again, it has to do with the movement of the sun, the movement of the moon, the movement of, you know, it's the, I mean, I, I understand, you know, the sun is stationary, it's the ecliptic, it's the earth's rotation around it, but, you know, it, it gives the appearance that the sun is moving. It's, it's the ecliptic that's giving rise to all these celebrations. Yeah, and all, all Christian, all Christian, uh, uh, all Christian celebrations or holidays are based on pagan holidays, right? Or their, their dates are, right? Well, a lot of them are, sure, of course. Yeah, that's so interesting. I'm so glad I met you. This was an amazing podcast. I don't want to take up too much more. I don't want to take up more of your time. If you could tell people where to find your books, where to find your website, if they have questions to ask you, all that stuff, I want people to go buy your stuff because this was so amazing, man. And also, thank you very much. I love this. Like, I, I, this was awesome. I got to thank Mark too because this was absolutely amazing. You did a stellar. This was amazing. Thank you. Well, thank you, Robert, for having me on Typical Skeptic. It was my pleasure, of course, to be here. Um, yeah, if you're interested in what I've been talking about, uh, by all means, go to my website. It's the easiest way to say uh, to find me on the internet. Uh, my name is Robert W. Sullivan the Fourth, and my website is just that. It's www.robertwsullivan, and then for the fourth, it's the letter I, the letter V, Roman numeral, letter I, letter V, all connected, all lowercase. Robert W. Sullivan, IV.com. Uh, go there. There's information about me. I have a blog that's updated routinely about shows that I'm going to be on and shows that I've been on. Um, it links to buy the books. They're all available in print edition or Kindle. Um, you can get them on all the major online booksellers, Amazon, Books a Million, Barnes and Noble. Again, um, you know, information about me, information about shows I'm going to be coming up, you know, you know, shows I'm going to be on www.robertwsullivanivy.com. It's a very easy site to navigate. 
go there to find me, go there to find my books. If you want to just go to Amazon and type in the book name or my, or my name, that'll work also. But again, if you just want to, you know, like I said, go to my website, robertwsullivaniv.com, all sorts of links to buy the books. Very easy site to navigate. Thank you. This was amazing. And I'll send you links when I post the shows. Please do. All right. Have a good night. You too. Thank you.